Hello and welcome back to the Tez News Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Morris. It has been a while. We've had a summer break and now everyone is back and rested. We're kicking it off again with a new season of the podcast. If you're not familiar with the show, I catch up with some of our great reporters and writers at Tez to go over the education stories that caught their eye each week. They share their expertise, their insights, their opinion, and keep us up to date on everything in the world of education. Talking of summer holidays, later on this week's episode, I talk to senior editor Dan Worth about new extreme heat guidance and what that means for schools preparing for next year. And senior editor Gronja Hallahan is back to go over new KeySage 1 and Phonics data released this week by the DFE. But first, to catch up on the party conferences, I'm joined by reporters Callum Mason and John Roberts. Welcome back, both. Hi there. How are you, guys? Yeah, all good, thanks. I guess uh, a lot has changed since we last ran the podcast, and also I guess a lot hasn't. Schools are still facing many of the same problems they were when we last spoke. Uh, this week, we're going to be taking a look at the party conferences. Of course, the Tory party conference was this week and Labour last. And I guess it seems that education wasn't top of the agenda at both uh, conferences. John, what was kind of the overall feeling uh, going into the Labour Party conference last week? Yeah, it was really interesting being at the Labour conference because kind of away from education, the general mood, definitely, and it built throughout the, the weekend and, and into the week, was just a sense that, that you know, they, they were miles ahead in the polls. Um Traditionally, I think sometimes people think Labour conferences can be more fractious and there can be splits and debates. There really wasn't any of that. So it was quite a unified, quite a professional thing. And I think sort of speaking to people in the fringes and um, and around the venue, there's just a sense of confidence that they were kind of heading for government. So that was one thing. That's one of the first things that kind of struck me. That, um, and particularly during Keir Starmer's speech, both in the hall and around the venue, people were really hanging on it. Like, this is a big deal. What's he going to say? And there was a real optimism. But obviously, we kind of go focused on teachers and schools. And uh, so we attend a lot of the education fringe events. There's a lot of there's almost like a kind of a mini policy community that sits on the outside of these events where where sort of great and good from each sector meet up and sort of raise their issues. And it was really striking to me that the mood in the education events was quite glum. You've got a lot of school leaders worrying about funding worrying about unfunded pay rises, worrying about the cost crisis. And there was just a sense, I think, that the the political chaos that we're seeing again and again, and, and in recent weeks now with, the, with the, the drop of the pound and everything that's followed, is that the education sector has been preparing to tell the government that it needs more money and feels like the prospect of that feels further and further away. So there was a real glumness around, around the venue generally. In terms of Labour and what they had to say about schools, um, their speech from Shadow Education Secretary Bridget Phillipson came on the last day. There was a big announcement that they trailed around primary schools having funded breakfast clubs for all pupils, which is probably which is obviously very well received. They reiterated something um, that they've talked about for a couple of years now, which is ending the tax breaks for private schools. They got a big cheer, and then they also gave a little kind of hint of a change of direction in terms of education by saying that. Um, they wanted the curriculum to focus on creativity as well as academic success and to include skills as well as knowledge, which, I mean, that was just a soundbite, really, but it would represent, if they kind of follow through with that in any material way, that will represent a bit of a step change away from the consensus of the last 10 years, which has been about a knowledge-rich curriculum, 
promotion of academic subjects. But um, yeah, I think my 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 main takeaway from it was a way that the Labour were very very happy generally about their their prospects, but the, the education sector is very very worried that their day to day immediate concerns aren't top of the pile. Yeah, you mentioned kind of breakfast clubs there as one of their kind of key uh, the key kind of education policies going forward i mean i hear breakfast club and i think of the film what do they really mean there by by breakfast clubs i mean basically it's about providing funding for something that exists in a, in a lot of places um but basically they, they they said that by they've made it topical because just going into the um on the eve of the conference the government held their mini mini budget fiscal event whatever they were calling it where they announced plans to scrap the top rate of tax for high earners which was proved to be like politically toxic, I think it's fair to say, and they've already U-turned on it now. But in that window where it was still something they were committed to, Labour said, well, we'll reverse that, and that will give us the hundreds of millions of pounds of funding that we need to pay for this. But it basically is a commitment to ensure that there is funded breakfast available for any child at primary school who needs it. But I think there are some question marks about whether the way, the the amount that Labour have put on it will actually meet, meet the need. And Callum, you spoke to some some people in the sector about that yeah absolutely so i think as you say with schools so worried about funding at the moment one of the first questions that school leaders wanted to know was how is this policy going to be funded how much money are we going to get for it uh, and as you say they said they would do it by reversing the top rate of tax uh, the cut to the 45p tax rate and um, which has now been reversed already um, without them being government um and the Labour party said that they would commit £365 million, I think, per year to this policy. Um, so I suppose the Institute for Fiscal Studies about this, just to see, does the cost in all sort of line up? Um, and they said that if you were just doing breakfast as in food, um, giving food to kids just for school, then it would really comfortably pay for the policy. And they said whether it would be enough to actually fund what Labour wanted to do, depended on the framing and exactly what they want to do. Um so they're saying that a caveat is if it's treated as sort of a childcare offer, uh, more more than a way of boosting sort of nutrition and what people are eating, then that is going to be a bit more expensive. Um, it's probably going to be higher take up, and you obviously got to fund staff to do that. Not to mention that it's very difficult to possibly get the staff to do that. So I think what the Labour Party said is that they'll you know they'll consult on the details of this um, if they come to a, a place where they're in power, they're in the position that they can implement it. But what school leaders have said really is that they would need they need to know the detail. They need to know it's not going to be another thing that they have to do, which is very, very difficult to do um, and that they don't have adequate funding for. And I think that's really important to them that they get that. Yeah. So it sounds like it was kind of almost the counterpoint there to that really unpopular tax cut there for the uh, for the higher earners. Yeah. Bridget Phillips had said something in her speech around the government have made their priorities the rich. We're, we're making our priorities children. Uh, which obviously like kind of a very very simplistic soundbite, but I think it was it was perhaps the best weekend of the year for Labour to have had this this event really like literally kicked off at the weekend just after this sort of latest political calamity unfolded on the Friday. But I I think I've seen a couple of commentators say this, and I think it's true. There was just a general sense of building optimism over the course of the three days. Like um, I'm not talking about education policy, here, but just in terms of the the party standing in the polls, the the kind of this new look Liz Trust government and what's going to happen next. Um, I'd be interested to what you think, Callum, in terms of how that contrasted with the mood at, at the Conservatives a few days later down the road in Birmingham. Yeah, interesting. I think as you sort of touched upon, John, um, these whole party conferences are taking place where they're reporting 
Um, but when you're at a lot of fringe events that focus on education, you at sometimes feel like in a policy bubble, don't you? Um, and uh, you sort of focus on education and you don't witness always the the sort of mood generally at the conference. But I think it was quite clear at the Conservative Party conference from the news that was coming out of it generally that was reported in, in mainstream outlets uh, about sort of cabinet members maybe contradicting each other or sort of breaking breaking ranks to say their opinions on things like benefit upbraiding and things like that. So I think the mood was quite different. I think in terms of education, what was different, I suppose, is that Labour Party are planning policies that they would introduce if they were in power, the Conservative conference, there were schools ministers, education ministers speaking there. So we got a flavour of, of their priorities and decisions that they were we're going to make. Um, so I think we could talk about a few of them now, if that sounds good to you. I think the key one which teachers will be interested to hear about is um, a panel that I was at um, with the schools minister, Jonathan Gullis, where he said that the government uh, wasn't going to budge on the, the pay offer for this year. And I think we can we can listen to him now, Josh, actually. The government is not going to budge on the 5% from the 21-2022 pay everybody. We remain that 5% is where that will stay. And obviously it's an 8.9% increase in the starting salary. So that pay review is not uh, being reopened. That that has been closed as far. We as a department and I am concerned. Yeah, so I mean, as we can hear from that clip, he was he was pretty firm that 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 five percent off for experienced teachers, um, a bit of a sliding scale for for early career teachers is is where the government is at. That's where it's going to stay. Don't think a lot of the unions uh, will be that happy with that, will they, John? Really? Um, no, I mean, Patrick Roach's instant response was that he felt like the, the, the that was the gauntlet been put down, yeah. um, and it'd be really interesting to see how how the, the sector responds to that because there's talk of industrial action across the um the main education unions in, in response to the pay situation and that's twofold one is the pay rise that's on the table enough to match inflation and the cost of living crisis that the people in the sector like the rest of the country are facing but then there's also this added issue um around the fact that the pay rise that has been put forward was announced after schools had set their budget and this big worry that school leaders have that they're being asked to pay for something that their existing budgets won't um, won't pay for. That's the other, the other thing that I think really struck me about the Conservative conference from afar was um was that again and again it's the same with the labor thing that the the kind of the financial realities of schools didn't really register and particularly not in in Kit Malthouse's um speech the education secretary or his his session in the main hall. Um that seemed to really not not speak about everyday specifics but just talks about education in really general terms i thought yeah that's right there were terms like he said that needs to be more assertive um in schools on standards uh and talks about getting the basics right um things like behavior attendance and i think yeah i think that's absolutely right i think what school leaders people who work in schools would have thought listening to that is what does that actually mean tangibly and how can we have these improvements that you're after when the only thing they can really think about at the moment, I think comes down to everything that we write is about funding and whether schools have the adequate money to, to make improvements and to, to sort of boost those standards. So I think, I think we've seen a, a letter, haven't we, from the Association of School and College Leaders today um, to the Education Secretary. I think that's right, John. Yeah, yeah, literally, yeah, objecting to his speech, really, and objecting to, to the way he's kind of talked about politicians needing to put constant pressure on schools. I think um, Jeff Barton said that they need to be moving heaven and earth to ensure schools can keep the lights on 
rather than making cheap shots. And just prior to Kit Malthouse's speech, um, there was a letter that went in from the um, Confederation of School Trusts with more than 350 signatures, basically saying, um, we need more money to, to, to pay for these unfunded pay rises. And we're really concerned that the, the Chief Secretary of the Treasury was talking about the government needing to find efficiency savings. The other the other thing that I think was kind of came out of the um the Tory conference, I guess, is that it was a new look DFE team. We've obviously had, I think, 28 reshuffles this year to my count. Um and so it was our probably our first chance to see to see them in, in kind of big public spaces. And um and the school standards minister Jonathan Gullis, who's a former teacher, we did quite a few stories on various different bits he said because he seemed quite um I felt like he was quite open in some of his responses, whereas when I was at Labour, they followed a couple of panels where their, their front bench were there, and they really were quite guarded in terms of new policy positions or what they were thinking about, whereas I felt like we got quite a bit from him on various different areas. Callum, you did a couple of those stories. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. Like, I think with the with the pay offer, he was quite open when he said it's it's sort of fixed, it's, it's not going to change. He was asked his opinion on on grammar schools, and he was frank and he said, "Look, my opinions on the on the record on these." He was asked if he wanted to see them, uh, the legislation come forward to reverse the ban on new grammar schools by the end of, by the next election, and he basically said, "That is that's my hope." Yeah, um, so I think we did see quite a lot of of openness, and I suppose yeah, that's you you wouldn't always see that from a from a minister. So I think that. In a, in a way, is refreshing. Yeah, to see. just just touching back again on that kind of how many reshuffles we've seen there in the DFE. I guess I was surprised looking in that it didn't seem that that kind of conveyor belt of education secretaries in the last twelve months was mentioned much by by Labour. Was it just not uh, a unique line of attack for them? Is it something we've seen in other departments? Or, I mean, education has had a, a little bit more of a turnover. So Gavin Williamson lost his job in September 21. It's like a general knowledge quiz now. I hope I get this right. Um, and was replaced by Nadim Zahawi. And then if you remember down, the Boris Johnson kind of downfall, um, Nadim Zahawi was promoted to Chancellor. Uh, Michelle Donlan then became Education Secretary, but then the pressure on Boris then became huge and everyone was handing their, their resignation to get him to go. So she went after a day. And then James Cleverly was almost like a kind of a... a it was almost like a summer job, really. He was the education secretary just to, to, till the next government formed. But I guess that there are other departments that have seen seen at least three or four. Bridget Phillipson did mention it in um, in the speech. But one thing I, I thought about Labour is that they they weren't necessarily attacking the Conservatives' loads. I think they were more. I mean, there was obviously lots of attack lines around this stuff around top rate attacks and whatnot. But I think there was much more of a focus of trying to look like we're a party of government. It kind of reminded me a bit bit of the um the mid mid 90s as i'm old enough um to kind of th think about how 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 labor sounded and felt when blair took over i guess a striking difference though was like blair's kind of favorite catch by soundbite rather was um education 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 and i think it's fair to say that education just wasn't quite at the heart of everything in the same way keir starmer didn't really mention it at all in his speech I thought there was an interesting kind of point of reflection there, actually, because didn't Liz Truss say growth, growth, growth today, and uh, as we're yeah. recording here on the Wednesday, which I thought might have been almost a slight slap in the face, given there was no mention of education at all. So that, that parallel there seemed a bit odd to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm not like remotely politically savvy, but I don't know whether growth, growth, growth will kind of resonate with people. I don't know whether people will be quoting it in 20 years time. I will have to wait and see. I guess it depends on whether it actually happens. Yeah, and I think it's I think 
talking about turnover in, in, in DfE ministers as well, I think it's worth saying that Conservative conference actually did get mentioned, which you wouldn't expect. Uh, Jonathan Gullis was keen to make light of it. I think he said that he, if he lasted till next week, I think he said he would be a veteran of the DfE. Um, <laughs> so I think he sort of chose to address that address that head on. And I think the, the growth, growth, growth term was um, quite interesting because that's actually a term that's been used by Keir Starmer in the past as well. Um, so both of them sort of focusing on on growth. But yeah, quite strange to mention growth um, and not see education as sort of the key to growth, I guess. It's the future workforce, future sort of taxpayers of the country, I guess, are being educated. So you would think it, it plays a key role, wouldn't you? Hopefully we'll be hearing more from both parties on their plan for education in the future. I guess in the in the meantime, do make sure to check out our website where we have all of the coverage we've talked about today from both uh, party conferences and much more. John and Callum, thanks for joining me today. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, George. Now, cast your mind back just a couple of months ago. What were you doing during the heat wave? In the garden, lounging and drinking a mojito? No, more likely you were inside, sweating uncontrollably, trying to find a way to stay cool and hydrated. And many schools had to close for this reason. That's why the government has added new guidance on extreme heat for schools. To go over this story, I'm joined by senior editor Dan Worth. Dan, welcome back to the podcast. Hello. I guess it's, uh, it's been a while since we spoke last. But um, today's story did have me wondering a bit what time of the year it was. Yes. We're looking ahead now, I guess, to uh, what could be a pretty bleak winter all wrapped up in woolly jumpers. But this story is about some future planning for next summer, right? Yes, you're right. It does seem odd to be talking about um, extreme heat as we head into winter. But as many people remember, during the summer, we did have those days of sort of 40 degrees plus heat, which meant many schools had to close. Um, interestingly, at the time, although there was new guidance that had only come out in April that year, of this year from the government about emergency planning for schools and, and childcare settings, which included having being prepared for extreme weather events to potentially close your school and, and how you would manage that, extreme heat wasn't listed. Obviously, we saw what happened in the summer. They've now added that to the document as of this week. Mm-hmm. It's a very small change. It only says literally extreme heat on two occasions, but it's notable <laughs> that it shows they're obviously reacting to what happened this year. Yeah, I guess, uh, like, who defines what extreme heat is and what actually defines extreme heat? Mm. Well, that is exactly the question, isn't it? And when I saw this update, I thought, well, we could, we could sort of cover it as just, they've added this, you go and work it out, um, as it were. But I sort of thought, well, actually, a lawyer would probably offer some good sort of mm. advice and maybe some explanations to some of these points. So I spoke to, well, I asked someone, Christopher Jones at Stone King, to write about this. And his view is, is kind of to your question is there isn't kind of clear answer to this. You know, there isn't a defined, you're not an extreme heat and now you are moment. I think it just comes down to that sort of sense of you have to decide as a school leader what, what you, would, you would do. And one of his useful pieces of advice, I think, is where he references that, that judges will often look at dictionary definitions you know what, what is the mm. definition of extreme so it's very great in the degree or not ordinary or usual so it's serious or severe so if you're in a situation where you say in your documentation you know if if the heat is extreme heat and there is a serious risk to staff and pupils and that's what you set out then when you believe that's occurring because you've reached 40 degrees or maybe 38 degrees in your setting whatever it might be you've got to kind of clear like well this is what we said we do and now we're following it and I think his advice sort of implicitly in that is that's what you need to do. You need to have a sort of clear, well thought out rationale in your plans. And that would give you cover as to why you make any decision. 
what what kind of measures could we expect schools to have to to have to prepare for this? I think it would come down to obviously if you if you close your school, it's then I guess how would you inform parents? How how much notice do you try and give? What does that actually mean? Does that mean the school's going to have to do with them for the day? Well, probably not. It's probably going to be remote teaching where you can. But again, it might not be because it might, you might consider that it's going to be too hot even if pupils are at home. You know, it's just the whole area is obviously going to be warm. Maybe it's not reasonable just for them to sit at a computer for several hours if it's, if it's that hot. I think, again, every school will be different on that and how they want to approach that. But I think, again, the, the advice in the story seems to be as long as you're sort of clear and consistent and have a clear rationale that you could say you followed and why, that would give you that kind of important area of, look, this is what this is what we did, why we did, if for any reason you were to be called up on it. And more so, so that you can inform your parent community and indeed your staff so that they understand, look, we know things are serious. This is how we're going to respond to it. It is nice to see some future planning for once. Mm. I think there's a lot of short-termism going around, kind of responding from one crisis to the next. And I guess, of course, this is a bit late for this summer heat wave just mm. gone, but it is nice to have this kind of planning and preparation in place, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, because it's probably going to happen again, right? The, 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 the reality seems to be. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, Dan, uh, insightful as always. Thanks again for, for joining me. Next up, to go over new Key Stage 1 and Phonics data released by the DFE, I'm joined by the brilliant Gwanya Hallahan. Gwanya, welcome back to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, how are you doing? It's been a while. I'm good. It's been a really long while. We haven't had any juicy exam stuff for a while, have we? No, we haven't, but that's kind of what we're going to be taking a look at today. Some key points from the Key Stage 1 and Phonics data released this week by the DFE. Uh, you and Dan kind of pulled out some key insights and compiled them into a need to know article, right? Yes, we did. The, the numbers all, all came through yesterday and we had a frantic, oh my goodness, look at all this data, dig, dig, dig to find all the interesting bits that teachers need to know. Yeah. And I guess we were kind of expecting to see some decline broadly due to the pandemic, right? Oh, absolutely. So we knew that this was going to be what was going to come because we had the key stage two sets obviously last last month and you know we've spoken to teachers we've spoken to people about how they've seen in the classroom in the children that they are you know a little bit behind for what they would normally be at a typical time of the year so we were expecting this and i think it's it just really hits home the fact that the gccs and a levels yep there was definitely an impact of the pandemic for those students and those learners but for these little ones they've had uh, such a smaller amount of their time in school compared to the older ones, you know, for their whole life. It's a, they've had more of their time disrupted by the pandemic, even though it's the same amount of time for the little ones, it's a bigger proportion of their school life. So it makes sense that they've had a, a much bigger impact from the pandemic. Yeah, of course. So, uh, so let's go into some of these key areas. Uh, phonics outcomes in decline. Yes, the phonics outcomes are in decline. So only 75% of pupils met the expected standard in the, in the phonics screening check, and that's down from 82% in 2019. So, yeah, a big a big drop in the number of children who have missed that expected standard in phonics. What about uh, the disadvantage gap? Has the pandemic hit those that were worse off before harder? Yes. And, you know, we knew this was coming. We saw it in GCSEs as well. That gap between our advantage, advantage and non-disadvantaged non and disadvantaged pupils has widened and now it's the widest it's ever been. 
So we've now got a gap of 17 percentage points, and that's up from 14 percentage points in, in 2019. So that is, of all the results, that's the, the saddest one, isn't it? That's the one that I think is the most worrying and the most pressing that we will need to think about. So, you know, what are we going to now do about early years? And what are we going to do about these students who are you know, now in year two to make sure that that disadvantage gap can close again? Because, of course, it's, you know, these are the most vulnerable and the more, the more, more disadvantaged, they're disadvantaged in many different ways. And it's important to close that gap. Yeah, there are some other key areas of differentiation too, such as geography or gender, uh, ethnicity. Are we seeing gaps there as well? Well, what's interesting is that the, we're, so let's take geography, for example. So geographically, when we break it down region by region, every single year there's more differences in the percentage of students that reach that expected standard. But this year, unlike the GCSEs, where geographically when we broke it down, the north and south, we've got this bigger divide, this year... It's all pretty much the same, although the, it's always a little bit different between the different regions. It's not more so than before the pandemic. So I think that's kind of reassuring the fact that the, the difference in um, n- numbers of infections and the approach to lockdown, which we saw, did change when you break things down by region. That doesn't seem to have impacted the, the, the performance in the phonics check. And what about for SEND pupils? Of course, that does cover a range of issues. So send pupils is a little bit interesting in terms of um, what the outcomes were when we compare those pupils who have an EHCP, so that's an education, health and care plan, and those that just had send support. So although um, the send decline was was greater than the, the decline for all students, there does seem to be a difference between those that had the educational health care plan and those that didn't. But You've also got to take into account the fact that you might have an EHCP for something that's not an academic reason. So, you know, it's the thing with SEND, it's there's a lots of different types of SEND. Take autism, for example. You wouldn't have two students who have autism that have the same impact upon their education. So, yep, the SEND results interesting, but every year there's always a difference in the, the SEND outcomes but on the phonics check because not all of those pupils will have a SEND need that that will impact their phonics performance. Yeah, I guess these are all these are all areas where you can see uh, you can see some change being made to address these these kind of declines. But I guess an interesting point to finish on is that maybe there isn't actually any point to all of this because it does sound <laughs> like there's a problem you can't solve when it comes to uh, the age gap within years. That's month of birth so there's always been this difference in outcomes by birth month right there has yeah you know, am i detecting a, a slight tone it, are you a summer born boy yeah is that when you're your birthday that's, that's me <laughs> so, yeah i knew it so <laughs> yes um when it comes to to birth month there's a lot of people who will look at the, the results when we break performance in the phonics check down by the month of birth you can see september born who've had you know, more time being taught phonics, they unsurprisingly get the best results. And then as you go month by month by month, month drops down in a nice, nice even line down to August mm. at the end. And it's just common sense, isn't it? The older you are, the more time you've had learning phonics because you've been in nursery for longer, or, you know, you've had more, more time um, even with at home with parents going through phonics and things. So yeah, the older you are, the better you do. And it's 
I, I think I saw a funny tweet from Simon Smith saying, you know, it's almost as if the longer you do it, the better you get at it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's one of those things, isn't it? For, there's a lot, there's lots of people who, who aren't big fans of the phonics check, but mm. um, yeah, that would, that graph does make me laugh every time I see it. Yeah, I guess, is there any, is there actually any solution to that issue? Is it just about not testing them at that age? Does that gap close as, as they get older? Yeah, I mean, you could test them when they've reached. So if, say, you did a staggered test and they did the test when they've reached the same number of months. So they're, they're the same. Oh, you know, it's, it just becomes a bit complicated. And would, would that information be any more useful? And what is the point of the phonics check? Well, the point is the check, can they can they identify the 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 graphene the phenols and can they can they blend? And then if they can't and they get extra help in year two, how long can you go on saying, you know, they're summer born, they're summer born? I've taught I think I've told you this story before when I taught somebody when I was back in the classroom, I had a, a student who was in year 13. So he'd he was 18 and or he wasn't quite yet 18 because he was a summer born boy. And I was finding his mum to tell him tell her that her, his coursework was going to be late because he hadn't, he hadn't reached the deadlines he was meant to have met. And just, well, you know, he, it, he is a summer born. <laughs> you can't keep, you know, <laughs> How long can you keep doing that? Yeah. <laughs> he's going to go to university or work next year. You can't, mm. you can't keep saying that. And, um, and she did laugh. Uh, but yes, it's, um, it's one of those things where different people have different opinions on it. And I think trying to tailor the test, take that into account, would be such a complicated maneuver would it be worth it for the data that you would get would the data be that much better i don't know i'd I'd have to let somebody far more clever than me work that one out well you've worked out a lot in this article we didn't touch on everything here and also if you're if being able to visualize some of that data helps included in the article we've got some charts that kind of make it easier to really see that drop in reaching the expected standard for example so do make sure to go check that out on test.com forward slash magazine Uh, Great to have you back on the podcast, Grania. Thank you for having me. 